0: I'm going to make him an offer he can't refute. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid.
1: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They
0: call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to episode 4 of 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order to see why the film is so highly regarded and see if we would make the same choice for Best Picture today, and if it really deserves that mantle of Best Picture. This time around we are looking at Cimarron, this is the 1931 adaptation, not the later adaptation. So just some of the pertinent details, this version was released on February 9th, 1931, directed by uncredited director Wesley Ruggles, based on a novel by Edna Ferber, with writing credits going to Howard Estabrook and Louis Yeah, And from there, shall we go through the basic plot? Sure. All right, so, yeah, this, like last week's, it's not a very clear narrative structure. It's essentially following the lives of members of one family from the Oklahoma land rush until the early 20th century. So just kind of a, you know, not quite a day in the life, more like a few thousand days in the life of this family where you've got... You know, the family patriarch, who is, you know, very adventurous and can't stay in one place too long. He's running a successful newspaper, but he wants to get out there and make his mark and help forge the new frontier. That's a Richard Dix as Yancey cravat. His wife, Saber Cravat, played by Irene Dunn, would much rather just, you know, settle in, pick one spot put down roots, and build a family there. Which puts a lot of strain on their marriage because they end up spending a few years apart at a time where she stays behind in Oklahoma writing the newspaper while Yancey is out gallivanting and adventuring. To the point where near the end of their lives, or at least near the end of Yancey's life, they're so far removed that they don't even really know where he is at any given time
1: this is the type of epic that i struggle with from a narrative structure perspective you mentioned in our last episode you know war films and westerns are not your forte i struggle somewhat with epics that are structured around great spans of time, I find they're really tricky to pull off because it's hard to convey that passage of time and also give you enough time with the characters to understand their motivations and where they're coming from. And I I saw that a lot here in uh, Cimarron. The first act, if you will, when they get to Osage after the land claim race, uh, spends a lot of time focusing on them as they settle in in this burgeoning community. But then you just get drops over, you know, a year later, three years later, five years later, and you start to lose a lot of the motivation and the narrative thread of the characters.
0: Yeah, there's there's one heavily expository conversation early on where Yancey signed the woman who's just agreed to marry him that, yeah, he's never spent so long in one place as he has here in the last three years. And three years was a long stint for him. And it's really that one heavy-handed conversation that sets up, this is the dynamic. He can't stay in one place for too long. She doesn't want to travel and go anywhere. She wants to find that permanent home and be done. And that's really all we get. There's that exposition and that's the template that everything else runs off of.
1: Right. So, for example, when they get to Osage, you know, he sets up shop as a lawyer, he starts a newspaper which sh- which she then runs, and a certain amount of time later, he's off for the next land claim. Narratively or from a plot perspective, all that they feel that is important that you know, is that he ran off. When he eventually comes back, did he set up any new businesses? Did he grab any new land? What was the purpose of him going? Nothing. It's just, I went and I'm back.
0: Yeah. Who knows, maybe someone else stole his horse. (laughs) Which is sort of the only really running secondary plot is his original shot at the Oklahoma land claim a uh, woman who was following him, her horse crashed in a ditch, she asked for help. You know, He helps her out, she says, well, she heard her horse's legs break, can you kill him for me, please? And he shoots the horse, turns around, and realizes she's taking off on his horse and staked out the land claim that he planned to claim for himself. So there's a little bit of a rivalry there, and later on, he is the only person that defends this woman. In the town. She's a bit of a social outcast because of her reputation. We learn in that scene in the courtroom why he is so sympathetic to her. I mean, his wife seems to think that, you know, maybe he's got a thing for her. And she's one of the people using their joint newspaper to really try to drive this woman out of town and, you know, send her to jail. But he comes up and says, no, you guys have it all wrong. These are the rumors about her. But this is the actual truth, how you've basically someone who was treated as a floozy turns out to be very much a victim of what is essentially a con artist.
1: Well, Yancey, the Richard Dix character, is very much a social crusader. And his wife, Abra, is very much the society social climber. And she is willing to go along with all of the in-fashion prejudices, if you will, necessary to fit in and succeed in that societal structure.
0: It is, and that is one of the things that I think this handles very well, is the way it treats the people that we here in Canada refer to as First Nations, Indigenous populations, Native Americans, you know, the, the people that Christopher Columbus erroneously labeled as Indians. This, I think, is a pretty early on-screen example of showing them in a positive light. So they're not just random villains here, which is part of the issue I generally have with the Western genre, is these people are reduced to stereotypical villains and that's it. You know, Yancey's there saying, no, these are people, they deserve rights, they deserve our respect... When their son decides to marry a Native woman, who's got very high standing within that Native community, Yancey's all for it, but Sabre's against it. We see over the decades Sabre's position soften to the point that she welcomes her daughter-in-law into the family. So how it handles the relationship to the Indigenous peoples, I think is, is fantastic, especially for 1931 that generally wasn't done, which is part of the reason I find it so frustrating the way the African-American peoples are treated for pure comic relief based on their stereotypes. It's
1: looking at of going, how do you not see that you're doing it? it? It tackles active prejudice against Native Americans as a social issue and then actively wallows in, I'm going to call it, passive racism of the african-american characters and the reason why i call it passive is it's not a plot point like it is with the native americans but you're right there there's an african-american child who i'm assuming is a a servant because this is set post civil war isaiah who wants to go with the family Most of his screen time is committed to him being the comic relief. But there's his tragic death to where some bandits ride into town. There's a shootout. The Caravats' young child was out playing in the streets when the shootout breaks out. Isaiah's the first one to notice it and the first one to try and do anything to help and he gets shot and killed. Yancey helps deal with the bandits, and there is 15 minutes, it felt like, devoted to, oh my God, the poor white child is safe. Aren't we all relieved that nobody really got hurt? Isn't it such a good thing that nobody was seriously hurt? And at the tail end of that scene, there's a sorrowful Yancey carrying in the dead Isaiah, and no one really comments
0: on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could tell that Yancey is bothered by it. To Yancey, losing Isaiah is a loss. But anyway, to everybody else, it is post Civil War, but Isaiah is still treated as property. To the point that before going to Oklahoma, Isaiah asked to come with him. His mom says, no, you're staying put. He stows away in their gear and says, I really wanted to come. And the answer and saber like, yeah, okay. As far as we know, his mom never even finds out the kid is safe and with them. They essentially kidnap him with the yeah. child's consent. But fundamentally, they're kidnappers. It's like, okay, he wanted to come, and they're still treating him like property. And there's other stereotypes. Like, we get to town, and it's like, Oh, yeah, Isaiah, you want a minute? I bet you they've got watermelon. And, you know, Isaiah is a little thrilled. Oh, yeah, watermelon? Really? It's the speech patterns, everything. Right. And it, it just, I find it so frustrating through this whole film that one minority group is treated so well and this other minority group is treated so poorly.
1: I've never read the novel, but did you feel like the movie focused on the wrong? Main character. I feel like it focused on Yancey because Yancey was the more bombastic and colorful character, but this really needed to be Sabra's story. I mean, because she's the one that has growth, but we never Mm -hmm. really see the impetus for a lot of that growth because we're always focused on Yancey, and it's how Yancey comes in and out of her life. Rather, I would have liked to have seen more about what was Sabra's life like without Yancey.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. Because even when you see glimpses of what it's like without him, it's because in the scene, the other guys are like, yeah, so, you know, I know he's been gone three years. You're doing well. But that's just the opening of the scene. They chose that scene in particular because that's when Yancey comes back. So it, yeah, it it really was the difference because, as you said, we see almost no growth from Yancey. And the only piece of Yancey's story that's missing is how he finds himself in his final status quo. Right. Because it, at the end, when I say they don't know where he is, he seems to essentially be a homeless person at an oil rig very near Sabra, who doesn't even know he's in town. There's an accident on the rig And Yancey dives in and essentially sacrifices his life to save lives of others.
1: And it's a complete coincidence that their paths cross again. She's now a congresswoman for the newly formed state of Oklahoma. And they're doing a state visit, if you will, with some visiting dignitaries to said oil rig. It was a diplomatic visit, for lack of a better word.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not that he didn't check in on her when he was in town. It's that they had no idea that they were in the same town at the same time. Like you're saying, it was complete coincidence that she just happened to be there. And, you know, when they start describing him, she realizes, wait a minute, that's probably ancy So she is with him in the final moments. But yes, this... This should have been Saber's story. I mean, Yancey is the one who's doing the Western adventure that sells tickets. So I, I get why there is focus on him. But yeah, it does really feel like they're, feel like they're telling the wrong story at points. Right? Early on, with the when it opens with the Oklahoma land rush, it is very much Yancey's story. At the same time, when he comes home and we see him coming in and out of her life... The scene is starting with Sabra at home talking about what's been going on with Yancey gone. It doesn't start with Yancey returning from his adventure and then coming back into her life. It doesn't show the adventure he was on. Right. So it's each scene is directed with Yancey at the focus. But the structure feels like it was structured around Sabra. Which makes me wonder, like you said, you hadn't read the novel. I wonder if Saber is the main character in the novel. And they just shifted focus because Hollywood is still struggling with the idea of putting the female characters front and center.
1: I mean, think about what that story would have been like. You essentially had a single mother struggling to run the business and raise her kids. There's There's a supporting character who... I guess we should also call out was a little bit of an unfortunate stereotype Saul, the Jewish peddler. But as Saul becomes a respected businessman in the community, you kind of get the feeling that he's the surrogate head of the household, kind of filling in as the father while Yancey's gone.
0: Yeah, he's that sort of the acting chair, so to speak, of a corporation who's been in that chair for six years, or ten years, or thirty years. Right. He has stepped up as necessity, because he at the very least has a tremendous respect for Sabres. Sometimes the way George Stone played him, I wondered if he was thinking the attachment was a little more than that. You know, I wonder if he was thinking, you no, know, Saul has fallen in love with her, but she's still married to Yancey and has no Plans to change that.
1: That's the way I read it. He definitely seems smitten with her, especially in the later years.
0: Yeah, it feels like they're the actual couple. So, yeah, he does step up. In terms of the other stereotypes, we do have a character known only as The Kid, who, you know, may have been inspired by Billy the Kid. You know, he's a teenage Western outlaw who we initially see as part of a group who come, you know, to rob them. And he's like, oh, Yancey? No, you know what? We're not going to rob these guys. Just give them their stuff back. We're going to head out. So this is the only way we know that they've got background with right. them. Yancy's like, you know what? The kid's all right. He needs some guidance. And then that shootout you mentioned, I mean, the kid is one of the victims. So that's... You now I can kind of see the people not lamenting the loss of the kid. I mean, yeah, on the one hand, he is the white guy, but on the other hand, He was the villain who instigated the whole thing. He was very much the bad guy in that situation. And in the moments immediately following this gunfire that he started, it just would have been a relief to know, okay, that catalyst is gone.
1: But what did you think of Richard Dix's portrayal of Yancey?
0: I actually felt that Dixon and a lot of the cast seemed to be coming in from the perspective of stage actors where you have to overplay and exaggerate to make sure that the audience in the back row can follow what's going on. But that doesn't necessarily work as well in a movie where you could put the camera right there. So I was actually a little surprised when I was looking up the Academy Awards that this one was nominated for and found that We've got nominations both for Dix as Yancey and for Irene Dunn as Sabra, you know, as well as Ruggles for Director and the Cinematography nomination. It ended up winning Best Writing and Best Art Direction, in addition to Outstanding Presentation. So that you know, this was very well recognized by the Academy, and watching it now I, I kinda wonder why.
1: Well, like I said, it one of the tropes that we hear about Academy Awards, you know, it either has to be an important message film or an epic. And I don't know that that's actually criteria that people use when they're voting as part of the Academy. A lot of people in retrospect refer to this as a Western epic. And I think that's what it was trying to be, and it probably succeeded on those terms for the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. In an off-air conversation, you had referenced how the West was won. Cimarron cannot hold up to how the West was won as a Western epic. You know, I, I think time has just passed this by.
0: It, it was well received by the Academy at the time. So Richard Dix was nominated for the acting Oscar, which went to Lionel Barrymore for A Free Soul. Now, I haven't seen Barrymore in that role, but I've seen Barrymore in enough other roles that I'm going to go on a limb and say they made the right choice. Even though the other nominees that year were Jackie Cooper for Skippy, Frederick March for The Royal Family of Broadway, and Adolphe Monjou for The Front Page. Now, I don't know Monju, but Barrymore, Cooper, and March. Right. You know, I know them. Jackie Cooper, to me, is Perry White. (laughs) So many decades later. For Best Actress, again, Irene Dunn was nominated, but ultimately lost. The winner was Marie Dressler for Min and Bill. The other nominees were Marlene Dietrich for Morocco, Anne Harding for Holiday, and Norma Shearer for A Free Soul. So again Marlene Dietrich is definitely no slouch. Right. Norma Shearer is a talented actress who was playing opposite Lionel Barrymore who won in his category. The art direction is one where yeah, I'm I don't pay a huge amount of attention to art direction, but I'm going to say, you know, what they that one they probably deserve because as we've said, this is a story that spans decades. And the set dressings, the costuming, everything reflects which year that scene is set in. Even if things like minor changes in the knickknacks, right, in you know, in, in the living room in their homes, you know, four years later, yeah, they've got a new fancy dish on that shelf instead of the old one. So they were putting a lot of of effort into that. It would be so easy to have just made the living room and used the same living room set. For the full 20 year span of this, but no, they were adjusting things.
1: I I asked about Dix's performance because one of the things that ran through my mind was I know the Looney Tunes character Foghorn Leghorn was a take on a radio character that was done on uh, one of Fred Allen's radio shows. I I can't remember the name of uh, the particular voice actor, but there was a Southern Senator character. On his uh, talk of the town radio show, and I'm wondering if that in turn was inspired by Richard Dix's performance in *Cimarron*.
0: Could be. I'm I'm not familiar with that character, so that's that's not something I can speak to. So you may be right, because he was, like I said, he he was overplaying a little bit,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and he it's almost a stereotype. Now, I admit I've I've seen a lot of old movies. I haven't seen a lot of old hollywood movies from this era. you know i've seen a lot of the european films so you know a lot of your you know the the french new wave a lot of the the german expressionist films you know the, most of the hollywood films i've seen are more like buster keaton and you know the universal horror series that were out around this time and we we mentioned earlier this was around the same period, although it may or may not have been the same season as James Wells' Frankenstein. So just to put it in context in terms of what else was going on in theaters. So, yeah, it's one, I don't know if it, you know, if this is a case of like John Carter where people are saying, oh yeah, it's all the standard tropes, it's boring, we're used to that, but this was like the first to do it. Right. Right, so this may be where some of these tropes started. In our last episode, I mentioned how war films and westerns are my two least favorite genres, and how All Quiet on the Western Front was a war film that for me overcame the genre, and I still enjoyed it and found it easy to recommend. Cimarron does not do that for the westerns for me. I would say if you like the western epic, you may consider it, but don't go in with high hopes. If you don't have a taste for the genre, then, yeah, I'm going to say if you don't have a taste for the genre, then you've got a better way to spend 123 minutes.
1: My father was really big into westerns. This doesn't even feel like a western to me. Like The first half does, but then it's, stops being a Western right around when the film hits 1900.
0: Which makes sense, because historically speaking, the Western era was over. Right. Yeah, it just, for me, that Western first half failed to really get me invested in the characters. Right. I mean, the only one I had interested was Sabra to see if we would see her change her mind Given all the outside pressures about the treatment of the Native Americans, but to me that felt it felt almost like a cheat because what's strongly implied in the film is that part of the reason Yancey is pushing so hard to earn respect for the Native Americans is because he it looks like he's got some Native American ancestry, which to me undermines the message. Now it makes it feel like maybe it's more for personal gain, especially when you compare that to the way they're treating other minority groups, it feels like that message that could have been quite powerful just gets gutty and emptied because of the way Isaiah and Saul are treated.
1: Well, and it goes back to what did we not see? You know, when we see Sabra's acceptance, it's in a very public political ceremony. Is Sabra's Really like that behind closed doors. We don't know if she is. Was this a Yancey Jr. put his foot down and said, Mom, if you hold to these ways, you're never going to see me or your grandchildren again? We don't know.
0: Yeah, she went from I never want you to see her again to I'm glad to welcome her in my house, and as you're saying. The I never want you to see her again conversation is in the living room, whereas she's a welcome member of our house is when she is a government representative at a formal banquet. Yeah, so it's just, yeah, I I feel there was the potential for a great message there, but there's too many outs and caveats built into the story structure for it to really hit home the way I felt it should.
1: Do you think that was intentional? Do you think maybe they felt like it was maybe becoming or had the potential of being viewed as a message film and they wanted to veer away from that? I don't know
0: that there would have been a stigma about message films in 1931. I wonder if it was just... 1931, there was a general fear of offending people. So I think they're trying to give hooks so it could be read either way. You know, like we talked about last month, you know, maybe the fact that they chose to represent the German soldiers rather than the Allies gave them a little more flexibility in their warts and all approach. So I'm wondering if you're, you know, if they had those hooks in the outs and, you know, maybe she really believes it, maybe she doesn't, if that was just their way of getting it out there without outraging the racist components of the audiences and potentially facing boycotts and lower distribution numbers. Because there that was an era where they definitely wanted to play it safe.
1: So how did this stack up against the other nominees?
0: Well if we look at these scores for Cimarron itself, the IMDB rates out of ten, this got a six. Letterboxd rates out of five, it got a 2.5. Rotten Tomatoes, 53% of critics recommended the film, and 25% of audiences recommended the film. So none of those numbers are stellar, but sometimes it's just films from that era don't age well. Right. So if we go through the other nominees, Eastland does not have enough scores for Rotten Tomatoes to generate any numbers. So there's nothing to compare it to there. The IMDb score for East Lynn is 7.1, and the Letterboxd score is 2.4. So East Lynn does better on the IMDb, not quite as good on Letterboxd, but the final reel of that film is missing. So we haven't been able to view that complete film since these websites launched, which makes me question the accuracy of those scores. Right. The front page... Directed by Lewis Milestone, who actually is the guy who, you know, I believe he won the director Oscar this year. He was certainly nominated for it. Uh, No, sorry, it was uh, it was Floyd Crosby who won for Taboo.
1: Lewis Milestone won the previous year.
0: Yes, that's that's correct. Yeah, so he won for All Quiet. The front page had a 6.9 out of 10, so not quite as strong as East Lynn but higher than Cimarron. On the IMDb, Letterboxd, it was 3.2 compared to 2.5. Rotten Tomatoes was 92 with critics, 63% with audiences. Skippy, which had Jackie Cooper as a child and who was nominated for Best Actor, 6.3 on the IMDb, 3.0 on Letterboxd, 100% with critics and 54% with audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. And Trader Horn is 6.5 on the IMDb, 2.8 on Letterboxd, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with critics, and 33% with audiences. So, as far as today's voters looking back those 80 years are concerned, the Academy picked the worst of the five nominees. Hmm. It actually came out almost bottom of the barrel across the board. The only film that scored lower than any of it is the Incomplete East Lynn, scored 2.4 out of 5 instead of 2.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd.
1: The only one of these that I'm familiar with and I I haven't seen it is The Front Page. And I'm only familiar with it because it's based off of a Broadway play that has been adapted several times. It's it would later be adapted as His Girl Friday with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. Okay. It would become a Billy Wilder, Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau film. And in honor of Michael Bailey to bring it all back to Superman, it was also done as switching channels with Christopher Reeves, Burt Reynolds, and Kathleen Turner.
0: Okay. Yeah, so I wasn't aware that that was the source, but I, I am actually familiar with switching channels because... As a child, I was looking for everything Christopher Reeve was in because of Superman. And yeah, His Girl Friday has been on my must-see list for far too long. I need to get around to that. But yeah, so I haven't seen any of the other nominees. I I can't say which should have won. I can't say that these scores are in line. What I will say is that I, I agree with you that Cimarron was passed by by time. It hasn't aged well, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if asking the Academy to revote on complete copies of every film that came out from this season would end up with it not even making it onto the ballot anymore. I would say that's a very distinct possibility.
1: In terms for audiences for today, I, I think we've already called out most of its shortcomings. And I
0: will say, if you are a fan of Art Direction, that, that that's an Oscar nomination, mm-hmm. I will give it. That's one that I think is very well
1: deserved. Osage, Oklahoma was a huge set that they built for this film and later became the basis for the RKO lot.
0: Yeah, it, it it is important in history, but comparing it to other movies, we were talking offline about how this came out the same year as Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein came out in November of this year. Okay, so it wouldn't have been the same season as this. That one would have been, you know, up against next week's or next month's winner, Grand Hotel. But. This came out five days before the Todd Browning adaptation of Dracula. And if I'm going to point someone to a movie from that year, I would say that, yeah, Todd Browning's Dracula deserves the nomination more than this. And never in my life have I considered that Todd Browning's Dracula should have been up for best picture. But if this was the competition, then maybe it should have been.
1: You know, that's an interesting proposition. I would agree, Dracula's the better film. But as I think about it, Cimarron, with, with the example, with the exception of Dwight Fry as Renfield, I could make an argument that Cimarron's a better actor or has better performances in it. I, mean, I don't know. Look,
0: I I would also put Lugosi hmm. in there. He's Lugosi wasn't a fantastic actor. I mean, to bring it back to Superman, he's like Christopher Reeve. I will say Christopher Reeve, to me, is still the perfect Superman. Nobody has done it better, but I haven't been impressed by Christopher Reeve in any other role. It could be the same for Lugosi. He was perfect in that role.
1: I would recommend a film called The Black Camel. It is a, It's one of the early Charlie Chan films that does not have Charlie Chan in the title name. But Bella Lugosi has an excellent supporting role in that. If you haven't seen it, I, I would check it out. Okay, I haven't.
0: Yeah, I know him mainly for Dracula, for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where, again, he's playing Dracula. And from there, basically, to Ed Wood. Yes, we we do not be careful following that recommendation. Don't confuse the black camel with the black cat.
1: No, different film.
0: Also Bela Lugosi, but yeah, very different. All right, so you know, I guess the the last thing is who would we recommend this movie to?
1: I could see recommending it to someone who perhaps is interested in this period. Of history. Even then, you know, just just being quite honest, you you know, if somebody was interested in, you know, something about the settling of Oklahoma, I I could recommend far and away, uh, and it'd be a better film. Um, But I I, I don't know. This wasn't a bad film, but it it was a very mediocre film to me. I, I struggled to recommend it to a particular audience what what about you yeah i would
0: again if you're interested in that era of history maybe but i would recommend mostly to to film students who want to see it and view it almost as an interesting failure it was remade in 1960 and that version got a 6.4 out of 10 on the imdb i haven't checked it on the other sites And to bring it all back to Superman, in that one, Yancey Kravat is played by Glenn Ford, who played Jonathan Kent in the 1978 film. But, yeah, this is one where I could see it being remade, because it doesn't work, but it feels like it wouldn't take a whole lot of changes to turn it into something that does work.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's almost frustrating in how close it comes to missing the mark and still not even land on the target. Right. It's almost like, you know, you've got, you know, the, the potential, you know, you've got a fantastic bow, you've got a great arrow, you've got a perfect line of sight on the target, but then when you actually draw the arrow back and let go, you're choosing to shoot with your eyes closed. It doesn't take much to turn this into something good. So, yeah, it could be worth using as an interesting failure or, you know, maybe in a double header with the 1960 film, which I haven't seen as a comparison there. But, yeah, that's all I'd really recommend it to are people who want to look at the craft of film and say, okay, what went wrong here? Why isn't this holding up over time? Because it really could have.
1: Yeah, if uh, to backseat film produced, and I have no skill for this, you know, if you change the focus on Sabra or even maybe have Yancey be so out of it that he's commenting on how everybody changed in his absences, I I think you'd have a much stronger film.
0: Yeah, even if you even some internal dialogue. So instead of having it, you know, on the camera on Saber when he comes back, if you keep the focus on Yancey and see as he comes back, they're changing because Yancey doesn't change that much. No. So see him looking for that adventure, looking for those new experiences and having him come to realize I'm the same man I always was. These new experiences aren't changing me. But they are changing. Right, Their experiences sitting here in this one spot over time have turned them into different people. Right,
1: the, they're,
0: Like I said, they're, it's almost frustrating because there is so much potential here, but it just feels squandered. It, it's almost there, but just doesn't make it. Okay. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for this month. So just invite everyone to join us next month as we look at Grand Hotel. That's the 1932 film directed by Edmund Goulding and starring Greta Garbo, John Barrymore, Joan Crawford, Wallace Beery, Lionel Barrymore. So I honestly haven't watched the movie yet. It's sitting on my shelf, but it definitely has the right cast. So we'll see where that comes. All right? and, yeah, so finally, thank you for listening.
1: Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.